from APM American Public Media. This is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. Last week on the podcast, we talked with the author of a study that said grouping students by academic ability helps them learn better. Academic sorting in K-12 public schools is making a comeback in some classrooms, according to a recent study by the Brookings Institution. Forty years ago, the practice was called tracking. Smart kids took classes with other smart kids. Students who needed help were placed together in classrooms that moved more slowly. Our guest on the podcast this week literally wrote the book that helped lead to the end of tracking. It was 1985, and the book was called Keeping Track. It said academic sorting worked only for the best students, and it left low-performing students behind. Keeping Track said schools should put kids of varying ability levels together. Then, with the help of good teachers, students learn from each other's strengths and weaknesses. Proponents of the approach say it's more like the real world, and it leads to less economic inequality in a society. Jeannie Oakes is still making the case for academically integrated classrooms. She's written 20 books and more than 100 articles about equity in school. Until recently, she was a professor of education at UCLA. Now she is the director of educational opportunity and scholarship programs for the Ford Foundation. Jeannie Oakes, welcome. Thank you. Let's start out where we left off last week. We talked to researcher Courtney Collins in Memphis about her study of the Dallas public schools. She found that both low- and high-performing students did better on tests when they were in classes with students of equivalent skills. What do you say to that? You say sorting still does not work. There's a long history of empirical work and a clear conclusion that is quite different from the one that is drawn about the Dallas study. Grouping students by ability has either no effects on student learning for any kind of students or that it depresses the learning of the lowest achieving students. Now, on the one hand, it is uh, often said that including kids with fewer skills or who are performing less well in a class with higher performers is good for the kids kind of at the low end of the scale. How is it good for kids at the upper end of the scale? An analogy that I like to use is the human family, (laughs) that kids, children, learn the most challenging things they will ever learn, extraordinarily complicated cognitive tasks in families. And families are composed of groups of people who teach each other and learn together in the context of doing real work, in the context of working across various abilities. There's nothing as heterogeneous as a family of children of different ages. Learning is a very social process, and we see children learning the most challenging thing they will ever learn in their lives in those heterogeneous groups, being supported by people of other abilities uh, and other levels of accomplishment. And I think that there's a lesson in that for how we ought to think about instruction in schools. Well, what doesn't work about sorting? In in what way does it create these inequalities? Well, one of the things that happens, first of all, the the, uh, idea is that if um, kids can be sorted into classes with other students of very similar abilities, that teachers will be able to tailor the instruction to the particular levels of ability in that classroom. That assumes a whole lot of things. One, that that ability is fixed, that it's stuff that kids have in their heads and that it doesn't really change over time and that we can accurately identify who is low ability, middle ability, or high ability, uh, either generally, which uh, often happens in elementary school classrooms when kids are grouped together for the entire day, 
or subject by subject. There's a lot of empirical work showing that, in fact, we, we do a terrible job of figuring out who is in each of those ability groups so that we end up with classrooms of kids that we presume are similar in their abilities, but in fact are very diverse classrooms. Then what happens is that in the effort to tailor instruction to the levels of the kids, we put into place a system that provides very different learning opportunities to different children. So if kids are thought of as low ability, they get exposed, for example, to far fewer words in reading classes, which we know is extraordinarily important in kids' cognitive development is being exposed to large number of words and developing vocabulary. They tend to be given learning opportunities that are more low level, so fill in the blanks, worksheet type activities rather than rich, more project-based, engaging kinds of activities. And then, of course, we've put them in classrooms where kids tend to feel that they're not very smart. Uh, A lot of them then act on those assumptions, and you don't have the rich interaction among peers that is so important to learning, which is a very social process. So we create a system in which we provide very different learning opportunities to different groups of kids, and lo and behold, kids who get less tend to learn less. Is it the case that sorting itself is... Uh, bad for student learning, or is it simply that the sorting is being done poorly? I mean, a bad class for kids who have, you know, more challenges is a bad class, right? It's not the result of sorting. Yes. Well, it's both. Uh, I think because there are two kinds of effects. One is peer effects and uh, the kind of student-teacher interactions that can happen in a diverse classroom, which is much richer and more potential in a mixed class than in a class that where kids have all been identified as being slow. And then there is the opportunity problem. So, so both things are at work here, both the sorting and then what we put in place as a result of the sorting. The Brookings Institution found that it appears that sorting is on the increase in this country. Do you see that yourself, and how prevalent do you think it is? The Brookings paper is a very interesting one because they asked teachers whether they uh, grouped kids by ability within their classrooms. And this is very different practice than the idea of having a whole classroom full of lower ability kids, middle ability kids, or high ability kids. So it's kind of an apples and oranges thing. The Brookings paper certainly is based on a survey of teachers uh, in conjunction with the NAEP test. NAEP is the National Assessment of Educational Progress. And more teachers certainly responded that they did more within class grouping now than they had reported several years ago. So I believe that, um, that that finding is probably accurate, but it's not really speaking to the issue of whether whole classes are being grouped by ability. It's not surprising that you'd see an increase within class ability grouping right now because there's so much pressure for teachers to do well on the standardized tests. And as we know, those tests are constructed, uh, the ones that count under No Child Left Behind, to show how many kids are at different levels, basic, proficient, advanced. And of course, the Schools are judged and held accountability for getting more kids over the hump into proficient or advanced. 
So it makes perfectly good sense that under those circumstances, teachers would group kids together and then especially focus on what are called the bubble kids, kids who were kind of just below the proficient level and really do a lot of drill and practice with them and getting ready for the test so they can bump more kids over that level to proficiency. A number of states are going to be adopting the Common Core state standards and Uh, language arts and in mathematics. These are a set of standards that some 40-plus states have agreed to use in the school year 2014 to say what students should know at particular levels. Will the Common Core have any implications for the way students are sorted either by classroom or within the classroom? Well, it it shouldn't. Now, what I'm I'm hoping will happen is that schools will organize themselves very much like the preschool at the University of California, San Diego, which is a a mixed ability, non-tracked school that does extraordinarily well, or in uh, the Rockville Center Schools in New York, which is basically a D-tracked school district where students do extremely well. But in both of those cases, or in Finland, (laughs) where they don't have any uh, tracking systems, in In all three of those examples, the kids are involved in something that's much more like Common Core, where it's really rich and rigorous activities. And the kids who have trouble, the kids who have more difficulty, get the extra supports they need, either by building extra time in, by providing uh, support sessions for kids who are having difficulty. So it's not as though everybody is treated all the same. Now, the nice thing about the Common Core is that it's organized around bigger, richer, thicker, more challenging kinds of knowledge and skills rather than just being a series of things that kids have to to, to memorize or a series of math rules that they have to be able to perform. It's, it's much uh, deeper and richer, which, and it may be um, counterintuitive, uh, is uh, much more conducive to healthy uh, heterogeneous classrooms. Classrooms that are with students of mixed ability. Yes. Well, how might technology inform this question? We've been doing some work uh, at American Radio Works on the idea of personalized learning and the use of various kinds of technology to help customize instruction for children within one classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, how might it apply to this idea of an untracked classroom or an untracked school? Well, I think technology can be extremely helpful and it can be extremely harmful. That the real key is the quality of the teaching that goes along with it and the quality of the design of the software that's being used. We could have technology that purports to meet students' special needs or the differing needs of kids in classrooms that is nothing more than just a series of worksheets. Or we could have wonderfully adaptive software and good teaching that is able to help detect how kids are thinking about problems and direct them to interesting problems that both reinforce their good problem solving and pick up problems and give them challenges where they're having difficulties. So I think the technology itself has enormous potential. Most of what we've got now in the way that it's used, I think, is not living up to, the, to that potential. Jeannie Oakes, thank you so much. You're welcome. Jeannie Oakes is Director of Educational Opportunity and Scholarship Programs at the Ford Foundation. You can find more podcasts about ability grouping and a range of issues in K-12 and higher education at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, browse the archive of more than 100 documentary projects and let us know what you think of our coverage, AmericanRadioWorks.org. 
We're on Facebook at American.RadioWorks, and you can follow us on Twitter at AMRadioWorks. Support for American Radio Works comes from the Spencer Foundation, the Lumina Foundation, and the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.